As I'm sure uh, you're all aware, uh, yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks in the United States. I suspect many of us, if not all of us, in, in different ways have been reflecting on that terrible day, perhaps reading or watching various pieces from all sorts of different angles, whether about the run-up to or the day itself or the, the days, indeed the years, decades uh, afterwards as well. There's, there's too many things to mention, of course, and that's not really what we're here for, but there, there's a number of things that strike you as you do reflect back on 9-11. One of the many things that I remember being incredibly struck by at the time itself, in the days following those attacks, in the face of such a horrific moment, there was an almost immediate tone of resilience and hope that reflexively spilled out from those who had endured those attacks, from everyone. Rescue services, politicians, members of the general public, even as they were literally surrounded by rubble, perhaps after the initial all-consuming sharpness of shock and disbelief began to somewhat lessen. It gave way in those moments, it seemed, not mainly to despair and hopelessness, but to a kind of defiant hope, to incredible resolve that they, as a people, would rebuild in every way, emotionally, communally, spiritually, and indeed quite literally rebuild, that despite the devastation around them, they would rebuild. Now, yes, of course, there were immediate priorities and needs that were dealt with in, in remarkable ways in those weeks, but there was more than that. Within almost every comment expressed, there was this sense of steadfast resolve that this was not the end. That Manhattan, for example, will come back stronger. That nothing would get in the way of healing and restoration and rebuilding. And there, there was and there is something so remarkably powerful about that. There certainly is a time for shock and silence and grief, for tears and lament for reflection and solemnity, and there was rightly much of that, of course, in those days, and, and even for finding stories of hope within the, the midst of the chaos, like the incredible story of the Ground Zero Cross. I don't know how many of you remember this incredible structure that was found resembling the cross of Jesus Christ. But to go beyond that, to talk of rebuilding in the face of such ruin and loss is quite remarkable. In Jeremiah chapter 30, God's word comes to his people, and as we've been learning, they were a devastated people, in exile, scattered, and lost, and crushed, a people devastated by sin and waywardness in a very hopeless situation, and they were a people trying to make sense of an attack that had come against them. 
and of destruction that had ensued and, and rubble and the, 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 loss, the loss of Jerusalem and its temple. And they were trying to get their head around what did that mean for all the devastating consequences that followed as a result of that. And God's word comes to his people. And God speaks to them of restoration and rebuilding. I'm going to read a number of different verses from over Jeremiah chapter 30. One of the interesting things, one of the interesting aspects of how Jeremiah communicates is that like many of the prophets, he has no problem at all quickly flipping between words of judgment, one verse, and then very next verse, words of mercy and grace right next to each other. And we have a bit of this going on in chapter 30. First of all, we get a sense in in the initial verses of the crisis that the people had encountered. So there's this initial sort of intro section. We'll just read verse 3 of that, uh, where it says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. Many think that this was actually a sort of intro to to this and the coming three chapters, these four chapters, the the so-called book of consolation in Jeremiah. It says, um, I will bring them back, God says, to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. And then we get this stark picture of, of terror and panic in these coming verses. Verse four, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. In the midst of this horrible distress and chaos, there is this assurance there at the end of verse 7 that that will not be the end for Jacob. And just a little testimony. This verse just jumped out at me. I mentioned I was sitting in Sandend reading this passage over my sabbatical. These words, it is a time of distress for Jacob. And I had known a little bit of distress in the previous months. And it says, but he shall be saved out of it. So I just share that testimony in case you're feeling distressed just now. Maybe just, you know, slightly out of context, but we'll get to why we can apply these verses to us. Just be encouraged by that. The the, the promise of God's word is any of his people, any of his children who are distressed, beat down, crushed, hopeless, will be saved out of it. Be encouraged. Let's jump to verse 10. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom, I am, among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So in these verses here, we get a sense of God's commitment to his people. The Bible 
is clear. This passage is clear that there are consequences to sin. There are consequences for a repeated rejection of God and his ways, which indeed the rest of this book of Jeremiah highlights in significant detail. But there is not, as it's put in verse 11, a full end in store for God's people. We do read in the scriptures of how God disciplines his people out of love. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 12 and in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. Just like any good parent, when a child stumbles and enters into a pattern or or a season or even a moment that is going to cause them harm, a parent steps in and sometimes appropriately brings a, a degree of discipline to get that child back on the right path. And for any child of God, we can know a few things with absolute certainty. We can know that God is for us in Christ Jesus, not against us. We can know that for sure, and we can know that we will expect, we we will encounter the Lord disciplining us, bringing us back onto the right path, and it doesn't always feel nice, does it? But I should want, I should expect, I should look for, and ultimately be grateful for the discipline of God, His loving correction. And his care. And this is what we hear about here. But no child of God will be made a full end of. Know that. Don't have a picture of God in your mind. That if you just do one more thing, you're done for. Allow that conviction to just bring you to the cross again. And celebrate that through Jesus Christ you're forgiven and free. We're going to be singing about that later on. Let's go on. Verse 15. Why do you cry out over your heart? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. You see, this is the justice within the heart of God. God cannot sweep sin under the carpet. Our guilt, our sin has consequences. This, of course, friends, is why Jesus came. He came to willingly take on himself the punishment for these sins that are mentioned here in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jesus came willingly and gladly to take the punishment for those sins. Hallelujah. Verse 16, therefore, all who, just to say briefly, don't stumble over that little word, therefore. Um, As I've mentioned here, Jeremiah is flipping back and forth. And here in verse 16, he he flips back uh, from judgment to mercy. And the therefore can therefore be a little bit confusing here in verse 16. It's a difficult Hebrew word. It might be better translated as but which I think fits the context more appropriately. Indeed, the NIV and the NLT, if you've got those translations, you'll see they use but instead of therefore. But but there we go. Uh, Verse 16, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. So So you get the context again. Israel, Judah are crying out to God for rescue. God's saying, okay, your sins are, are, are causing a problem here, but ultimately here's the promise. All your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. All who prey on you, I will make a prey, for I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. The point here is this. Restoration is coming. 
Healing is coming. Though, cast your eye down, look in verse 12, and in verse 13, and in verse 15, Jeremiah says to the people, there's no cure for this ailment, or this problem that you're facing. There's no cure, there's no medicine, there can be no healing. God's word, again, just the miraculous grace of God breaks through here, and God says, no, no, there is healing. Although there should be no healing for you, there is healing. I will not only patch up your wounds, but I will bring complete restoration to you as my people. What a God this is. Then from verse 18, we get more detail than we've had so far of what this return will look like. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents, or you might say clans, of Jacob, and I will have compassion on his dwellings. So here's talking about the homes of the people of God, their, their communities, their, their dwelling places. They had been completely devastated and, and ruined. Let me just give you a little glimpse of what that felt like. In Jeremiah 9, verse 19, this is what we read. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. So their communities, their homes are ransacked and in turmoil and in mess. And that now this has happened. The people might think Jerusalem was lost. They're trying to make sense of what their future would be. And God says from verse 18 onwards, I will have compassion. I will restore their fortunes. So, so far in the chapter, we're acknowledging, first of all, the devastation and the need for God. And just repeated reassurances of restoration and homecoming and rebuilding. And then these are the verses that I'd really like us to zero in on. The rest of verse 18 down to 22. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving, and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves, their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me, for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God." I mentioned last week that it was 10 years uh, from that weekend since IBC became Hillview Community Church. And uh, one significant part of that journey was this document. Some of you will recognize this document, but actually probably many of you won't. Uh, this came out in June of 2011, and it kind of tried to capture a lot of how we felt God was guiding us uh, from this move from IBC to Hillview Community Church. And uh, as some of you will remember, um, we had a, a process that we used to find a new church name together. 
Uh, we received suggestions from anyone who wanted to write down little suggestions for the church name. We had a box that you could put them in. And, and from those suggestions, we offered three options. And we simply voted as a church on which one we felt would be most appropriate. Uh, do you want to know what the options were? They were, obviously, Hillview Community Church and Grace Community Church and Hope Community Church. And we explained a little of why we landed on Community Church, but then these different words at the start. And uh, for each of the names, we included a little spiel explaining some of the rationale as to why we thought this was a a good option for us to consider. Um, I'll just read you what it says for, for Hillview Community Church here. This name reflects our location with four significant roads near the church having that name. I I helped write some of this, and I'm bothered by how many times I said the word name in that sentence. Sorry about that. Crucially, it can be infused with theological meaning. We want to be, quote, a city on a hill. Consider also the Psalms of Ascent, that journey ahead of us towards the presence of God through the realities of life. Hills can be hard to climb, tiring, a struggle, but worth it. Finally, it points us to the vision of the cross on another hill far away. And what we found in those days was that the local connection was very important to people. And and Hillview Community Church was by far the clear winner. Um, One of the reasons we went for Hillview is, let's just be honest, cults, community church is a little problematic. If you're, if you're new to Aberdeen and you have no idea and you're Googling churches and you find a church called Cults, ah, I don't know if I'm going there. Um, <laughs> although we didn't pa- bypass this issue altogether. You, some of you have heard one of my favorite Hillview stories is early on in the journey, a lady had phoned the church and was taking some details down for something. I can't even remember what it was. So she asked me what the name of the church was. And when I said Hillview Community Church, she hesitated and somewhat awkwardly said, sorry, could you repeat that? I said, yes, Hillview Community Church. And uh, still confused, she began to spell back to me what she thought that she'd heard. So is that H-E-L-L? No, no, not Hellview. We are not Hellview Community Cult. That's a bad name for a church. We are Hillview Community Church. We'll take a hard pass on Hellview. Thank you very much. But that we are Hillview captures the fact that while we are a gathered church, I don't know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but it's a small number of us that walked here today. It's a small number that live in Colts and Beulta. We are a gathered church from different parts of Aberdeen and indeed Aberdeenshire. While that is the case, through this building and all that is sort of Bursting out from this place, we are significantly rooted in cults and Bealside in this particular part of Aberdeen. And people got that, people felt that, and that's why Hillview was the name. And there's something else about this particular ground on which the church building sits that is significant. Um, Verse 18 there, the, the, the second part, talks about this city being rebuilt on a mound, And in a very real sense, we as a church are built here on a mound, in a sense, at the the top of the part of of a hill. If you walk through that fire door there and up that little grassy section, you can see a beautiful view over the, the Dee Valley. 
So Matthew 5, 14 feels a significant verse for us. It's, it's why it's on the wall over there. Where it says, you, Jesus said to his followers, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A little bit like this building. You can see this building from various parts of the surrounding area. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Or can it? We have been a little bit, haven't we, hidden? In recent months especially. Here's the question that I'm wanting us to consider. How are we doing as a church in our shared life together under the truth of that word, under the truth of that verse, that this is who we are in Christ, individually and together, the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We have been a bit hidden, haven't we? I mean, there's lots of obvious reasons for that. Most obviously, those steel gates out there have been shut and locked for huge chunks of the last 18 months. Do you feel a little sick as you think about that? I do. Time will tell whether we've honored Jesus in this season. You know, so many different bits of information coming at us, many difficult calls to be made. What does it mean to love one another well? What does it mean to love this community well? Lots of challenges. Take a lot of reflection over the coming years to seek God and to reflect on this time. But we've been hidden to a degree. We've been hidden behind YouTube view numbers. We've been hidden behind camera off Zoom avatars. We've been hidden behind WhatsApp check-ins rather than tears and laughter over dinner together. Now, please don't mishear me. We have sought to repeat again and again. It's not just throw away words. God has been at work in this season, has he not? Can we not celebrate that together? There is always so much to celebrate in the incredible activity of God. He is not bound by lockdowns or YouTube services or Zoom prayer meetings or anything like that. God has been at work, yes and amen. And we celebrate that truth. There are so many wonderful, wonderful and creative ways that the whole family within this church got together to try and share the good news of Jesus and celebrate and worship Jesus together over these months. I am not in any way diminishing the wonderful work that God has been doing over the last months, but we do also need to acknowledge the impact of this season that we've encountered. Now, as well as lockdown, there are other factors that have contributed here. As I began to wonder, ask this question, how are we doing on, on not being hidden? There's other things. It's not just lockdown that have been a challenge to us as we have sought for these grounds here to be the place of light and hope and shalom that we believe that they should be, that this document speaks to. So some of those are good and appropriate reasons as we've sought to honor the Lord together. For example, we have had seasons of tragedy in our church family 
And we've had to deal with that together as a church family very carefully. Secondly, it's hard for all the church family to feel a passion for this particular area when they don't live here. Some in the church find that easier than others. Maybe some of you thinking, no big deal. It doesn't matter that I live X, Y, or Z place. It's not Cults and Beals side. People need to get over it and just get stuck in and Cults and Beals side. Not everyone finds that easy. Not everyone finds it as easy as you. So we need to be patient with one another. It's hard when your life is rooted in a particular community. You know, what is Cults and Beals side? We need to pray for God's help in that. The whole point of what I'm saying is, it is something significant because God has gathered us together in this place and this building is not the be all and end all, but it certainly is significant. But it's not easy for everyone to feel that. So we need to bear with one another. Another reason is why it's been difficult to embrace this reality is because the wonderful truth that we planted a church in Kintour which has taken a tremendous amount of time and attention. We celebrate all that. And we also then, not just lockdown, not just good, understandable reasons, also challenges along the way. Some reasons that are not so positive that we should be honest about. We all have, do we not, the usual challenges of having to navigate how we spend our time. Where where do we prioritize our time? Is it work? Is it family? Is it social activities? And to what extent do we prioritize the call of God in the service that he's asked us to participate in his ministry in, in this church? We don't always get that right. We've not always honored God in that, not one of us has always got that right. Secondly, none of us are as on fire for Jesus as we should be, right? Let's just be honest about it. Thirdly, none of us are as caring for our lost friends and neighbors as we should be, particularly the people of this community who see us gathering here week by week. We're not as burdened for them as we ought to be. We do not have as big a burden for the lost as we should have with as pressing an understanding of the reality of hell as we should have. So in all of that, we have not dreamed or prayed or reflected long enough or hard enough or big enough. And in all of those challenges, The danger is we're pulled away a little from living as who we really are. We, brothers and sisters, with Jesus in our midst, are the light of the world. The city on a hill should not, must not, indeed, in God's grace, Jesus said, cannot be hidden. So, Friends, family, let's hope in God together now and in these coming months. As God's word came to his people in exile, a people lost and in need, far from home, crushed and struggling, so I believe these words come to us today. Are these words not for us? Verse 18, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. Have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Just to pick up on a couple of things from these verses, the word palace 
in verse 18 is an interesting one. It could be translated, it is multiple times translated in in the ESV as fortress, stronghold, mansion. Uh, One word the ESV uses very regularly is citadel. I love that word. It's a great word of strength and glory and fortitude. Many of you will know of the Salvation Army branch of the church and how they, when they meet together, they meet in what they call the citadel in whatever city. It's not just Aberdeen. It's around other parts of uh, at least the UK, certainly, I found uh, this week. And and I always thought that's a kind of an awesome name for a a church building, a, a place to be together, the citadel. And here in Jeremiah chapter 30, the, the picture is of a city rebuilt with a powerful, beautiful citadel, or perhaps many citadels, strongholds, standing firm within that city. Um, If I can just turn back to Psalm 48, you might want to turn there, just the first three verses of Psalm 48, I think evoke exactly what Jeremiah is prophesying prophesying, in in Psalm 48. Listen to that, you'll know know these words, many of you. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels. God has made himself known as a fortress. Exactly the same word as mansion in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18. This holy city, beautiful, lifted up, the joy of the whole earth, the city of God, made up of these powerful citadels, altogether making God known. That's what Hillview Community Church can be. The city of God, made up of a selection of mansions, fortresses, citadels, making known the joy of the good news of Jesus Christ. And then acknowledging the extent to which there has been damage for the people of God. Neglect, dereliction, brokenness. We can take hope from God's promises in these verses, back to verse 18 and 19 of Jeremiah chapter 30, that rebuilding will come for the city of God. Now, of course, that's true in in its widest scope of what God is doing across his global church. But we, friends, are part of that story. This community of faith, this city on a hill that cannot be hidden, verse 18, shall be rebuilt on its mound. And the citadels, these strongholds of faith, will stand together for the glory of God and the joy of all the earth. What a vision this is for us to have together. Look at verse 19. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. You know, whatever rebuilding God is pleased to do, over the coming months and years, may this be at the very center that from this place, both literally and indeed metaphorically as we scatter, but from this place, songs of thanksgiving and celebration would spill out louder and louder and be heard by the people of cults and Bealside and beyond. Second part of verse 19, I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. 
There's, there's growth that's, that's called, that's pointed towards here. And as this city grows, we can pray for this multiplication to come. God says, they shall not be few. They shall not be small. I will multiply them. It's not an either or. It's, it's a both and. Ministry and multiplication. What is God calling us to here? And then as that grows, as those citadels are strengthened and multiplied among us, may it be that from among us, it will spill out. It's always out. God grows us within and then he sends us out. It's not either or. May Jesus send his church, continue to send his church, always moving out to this city, to this region, to this country, indeed to this world. What does this look like in practice? (laughs) Some of you are wondering, well, here's my 10-point plan. No, I'm afraid that, well, you'll be glad to hear, in fact, that that's not what I'm suggesting getting at just now. What does this look like? What what are we talking about here? We speak about the the city on a hill being rebuilt on on this mound. I I don't know what it looks like in practice. I don't think we know yet. But we do need to pray together. We do need to, I think, in this new moment, I think increasingly, begin to ponder and dream together to seek God as to what this might look like for us here. I know that it is on the heart of many of you as you kind of walk around this building and consider the various rooms and various aspects of of this beautiful place that God has put us. I know that many in the church are feeling it's a little tired. It needs some TLC. Not just a lick of paint, but what, what are we doing here? What's God calling us to? And, and how then does, does this incredible gift of these facilities that he's given us, how does that tie into that? And what steps, if any, do we need to take? We need to pray. We need to pray, dear friends. That's really what I'm getting at in this message. My hope and prayer for this time is just that we can begin to, again, it's not a brand new moment, but it's just that continuation of what God's doing, that we can begin again to pray and to dream and to plan at some point, to seek God together with the many trials swirling around about us after this season of scattering, conscious of the rubble that is around about us as a nation, as a world, we can be assured God will bring restoration and rebuilding one way or another. (laughs) We don't want to get in the way of that, right? Do we not want to jump on board with that? Verse 20, God will establish us again. He will come against every and any enemy that would stand against us and against the people of God and against this great God of ours. Here's my closing question. How can we be confident of this? And it's because of verse 21. Because Jesus is in our midst. There's a, a wonderful Old Testament scholar called Derek Kidner. Many of you may have used his commentaries in your devotions. Uh, if you're struggling with an Old Testament book, just encourage that. Buy a Derek Kidner, Kidner commentary. Read a little section every day and read what he writes about it. It'll be a great help to you. Listen to what Derek Kidner writes of these verses, verses 18 to 22. The idyllic picture of verses 8 following 
is now filled out with details, not only in terms of regaining all that had been lost, verses 18 to 20, but of something new, a ruler, one of themselves, who will be what no king had ever been allowed to be, their mediator and priest. It is one of the boldest but least known messianic prophecies. For this ruler is clearly the David of verse 9. If you look back to Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, it says that David, their king, will be raised up for them. Of course, King David's been and gone, but there's a son of David coming. Verses, uh, let's just read verse 21. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Kidner concludes like this. Once again, God is lifting their eyes beyond the return from Babylon and the day of small things to the promised priest king whom David had foreseen and whose benefits we now enjoy. Jesus, our king, our precious Lord Jesus. He is in our midst. He is the one through whom God says to us, you shall be my people and I will be your God. It's just through Jesus. We need not fear any devastation that surrounds us. God will restore and rebuild this city and the citadels within it. You, me, us. May faith and hope arise and joy, clarity, celebration as we see what God will do among us. Let's pray. Father, we just do recognize that in these days there has been great devastation. And Lord, we are working through the details of that and how that has impacted us individually as, as friends and family and as this community of faith. And Father, we just thank you so much that you're a God who brings healing. That though, as it's mentioned there, there's a few different times, it's just highlighted that on the face of it, there can be no cure. What is the ultimate hope for this world? One might say, and then we read Jeremiah 13, and we hear that you're a God of healing and restoration and rebuilding and life and salvation. And I just pray, God, that you would take the rubble that lies around about us and build something beautiful, this city on a hill, shining forth with the light of Jesus Christ. God, would you bind us together, I pray. It's very hard to figure out the detail of what that looks like here in Colts and Beardside and for facilities like these, and we need your help. Um, help us move at the right pace. Help us honor one another as we do that. Help us hear your voice. And most of all, would we have that vision 
of Psalm 48. This would be the city of our God, the holy place, the joy of the whole earth. And that these songs of celebration and thanksgiving would burst forth from our lives, from this room, from this building, from all that you will do in the various ministries that take place through the life of this church. Oh God, be glorified. Just be seen in this area and beyond as the awesome God that you are. And just help us to do that. Help us to just display and mirror the wonderful glory that you've shone into our hearts through Jesus Christ. How we need you, God. Help us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.